Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the nihilistic films of the video store era. Tonight, we are talking about the 1992 shot-on-video German underground classic by Olaf Ittenbach, The Burning Moon. My name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, we here on Video Store Nightmares are just a bit nostalgic for the 90s. You know what I'm talking about. Video stores, Whitney Houston, the awful noises made by dial-up modems, and in theme with this episode, a significant increase in global heroin consumption. As of this broadcast, you can find 1992's The Burning Moon on Amazon for deuce dollars or YouTube for free. And then you, like us, can take a ride on the galloping horse to make bedtime storytelling fun again, or at the very least, more tolerable. Yeah, and if you have a VHS release of this, like, I bet you're a happy person. This was released by Dead Alive, which released a lot of shot on video sort of classics. Um, and like all of their releases, this one is rare and expensive. Uh, I have the early 2000s, I think, Mondo video release, uh, 2012. Anyhow, this is the first shot on video movie we're discussing on the show. Um, Leland, how do you feel about the shot on video aesthetic? I had a very cautious mindset walking into this film. I remember you specifically telling me it was shot on very amateur recording equipment. And that is true. <laughs> this whole thing looks like a like a late 80s infomercial on late night TV. This actually looks amazingly good for a shot on video movie. Like most shot on video movies look a lot rougher than this. Maybe it's that German engineering. Maybe they got something special going on. I don't know. I mean, it's also relatively late, 1992, right? And I so IMDb estimates the budget at 70,000 Deutschmarks, which there's no Deutschmark anymore, so we can't like do that for inflation. But I think it would have been about $50,000. So I think that the effects, especially in this movie, are very impressive for $50,000. Do you think this is one of those films where all the actors worked for free because this was a hobby? Well, so Olaf Ittenbach already had a career at this point. I think this was his second film and he's made a bunch. This is actually the only one I've seen, um, but he turned into, I mean, for a shot on video filmmaker, a pretty um, prolific. He did the special effects for 40 movies. He acted in 22, directed 21, wrote 19, produced 17. So, I mean, we're talking about a fairly professional guy. Um, I don't know how many of the actors were paid, but I do know that he plays our lead storyteller. Well, that, that makes sense. Yeah, so just picture that guy directing a movie. But how so how much of this budget went into the last, no, say 20 minutes of this film? I imagine a lot of it. I mean, I think I think Ittenbach started as a special effects guy. Like I think that's what got him into filmmaking. And he's responsible for 
you know, this, these special effects. Uh, I think he's just really good at what he does. So I, I know you've already said you haven't seen anything else from this guy, but what else has he done? Is there anything else I would have heard of? Probably not. After this, he made a film called Premutos, which is like a um, a killer movie. I haven't seen that one, but I've heard it's quite good. Uh, Legion of the Dead. Mm, he got into what I assume are some porn films. Legend of Hell, Savage Love, God Forsaken, Black Past. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any of these, um, but I have heard that Permutos and Legion of the Dead are both worth seeing. Is this like, are we talking about like stereotypical like German fetishist porn? Well, he made one called Dard Divorce. I don't know what that is. Uh, he made one called Garden of Love and a garden of love too. All right, so um so yeah, I think this is a professional guy, but like does it detract from the movie for you? Is it distracting? Not as much as I thought it would be. I, I am kind of a, a of a, like a demanding princess when it comes to quality sometimes, but in this case I think it kind of added to the charm a little bit. I think that's true of shot on video movies. Like I think the look uh, adds to the charm. Like my wife can't won't watch them because she hates this look so much. But I think it adds to the charm of the films. And I also, I mean, I kind of said this in our video dead episode, but I think that when you've got a a group of semi amateurs at least, like making a film, you've gotta take it as a different entity. Like it's a different kind of filmmaking. And now and then I, I enjoy it. I mean, in her defense, if you're not ready for it, if you're not prepped for it, it is kind of jarring. Yeah, I guess. See, I can't take handheld camera movies. It shot on. It can be shot on any format you want, um, but just don't like hand, hold the cameras and do the shaky cam thing. You know, it didn't look so much like um, home video camera. It looked more like uh, like something you would see on an old BBC recording. Yeah, I I don't know my um I don't know my filmmaking techniques well enough to like say what the similarities might have been, but th this does look very good for a shot on video movie. Probably the best looking one that that I've seen up until this point, right? I think there have been one since that look better, but th this was groundbreaking, I think, for those people who saw it. So um, this guy's other films, are are they also on this kind of equipment? Or did he, you know, up his game in production later on? Oh, no. I think that his entire filmography is shot on video, but I could be wrong. So let me tell you how I watched this film. Okay. So, so last episode we discussed, and I don't know if it made it to the recording, uh, where to find the burning moon. And at the time, it was not on YouTube. So I was all set to buy it on Amazon for, you know, what, $2 and some change or whatever, right? So I sit down on my browser, I try to buy it, and I can't because apparently my monitor does not have a DRM, anti-DRM feature that <laughs> prevents me from possibly recording the film if I rent it. That's strange because, I mean, I guess they can't, 
track this technology anymore, but like I can record something from Amazon on my VCR. So I could very easily have just like gone, I guess, downstairs and like use the you know PlayStation app or whatever, but I was, you know, not in that room and now it's a principal thing. So then I went back to YouTube and we lucked out because two days ago, someone re actually uploaded this film with English subtitles. Maybe someone heard last week's episode and heard about our dilemma of it not being on YouTube. Maybe, but I don't know enough about this, this channel to rep them. Cause you know, as soon as we endorse somebody, we're going to find out they're like a anti-vax Nazi Holocaust denialist. We can't risk it. Well, if you are the industrious listener that uploaded the burning moon to YouTube, some of our other listeners say, thank you. I'm sure. <laughs> and, and this is one you should probably watch before listening to this episode. Yeah, I don't know if knowing the plot like spoils this or not, but I, I, I would always encourage you to go check out the movie first um, if you haven't already. All right. All right. So am I emotionally jaded or is this horror comedy? I think that this definitely has a tone of, I was going to say ironic humor, but as I said in the beginning, I think it's more like nihilistic, more like anarchic. And if... It, it, there is a degree to which I think that's funny. I don't know if I would call it comedic. I think this is way funnier than the video dead. Okay, I can see that. I think this is much more grim. And, like, there are funny elements to it, but at the same time, like, I don't know. On this watch, I was more disturbed than I have been on past watches. Hmm. And, and I'm sure we'll get to that when those scenes come. Yeah, we'll talk about that as it happens. I, I think this is a perfect note. Let's play the trailer, and then we'll get into the story. From the people who brought you the Traces of Death series, Dead Alive Productions brings America the goriest horror film of them all. The Burning Moon. When the moon is full, the blood tide rises. No matter what you've seen, you ain't seen nothing like this. Banned in 14 countries, straight from the German underground, in its original, uncut, uncensored version, The Burning Moon. You want it? Make them get it. So this movie starts off with like a really dark, very 90s synth score. What did you think of the, the musical score? You're talking about this opening title card, right? Right. Yeah, is, is, is this a horror film or the Terminator? It's very serious. It's very dark. Um, I think it fits the film, actually. It, I'm just saying, it has the same thing where you know, the letters are all blown up and then it zooms out and you see the whole title. Yeah, like this is fucking Star Wars, right? <laughs> no, so after these after these epic opening credits, uh, we start with our main character, Peter. Um, he is played by the, the writer-director, Olaf Ittenbach, and he's going to a job interview. This guy who's interviewing him is like so generous. Like, he's trying to help out this guy so much, and this guy's just not having it. 
what did you what was your first impression of this character i was trying to think of were guitar pick earrings like a a big thing in in, in, in germany <laughs> maybe in germany i don't know like the only time i've ever seen something like that was uh was like on etsy <laughs> yeah this is pretty etsy so um without giving away too many details of of my personal life there is someone i know who owns an office and everyone who works in this office has some kind of like crafting side hustle like candles wind chimes like you name it so someone has a category for everything and this earring looks like something that would have been made in in that whole population that ecosystem that that belongs on etsy so yeah he's uh he's the job interviewer is saying that he's failed all his classes but grades aren't everything it's how you do your job he asked the interviewee if he would like coffee but uh peter is like how about a beer right and then he starts smoking a cigarette and the interviewer you know tells him he can't smoke here what would you how do you feel about this exchange man he's just casually bombing a job interview apparently with the boys because he was with his friend who always wait his friend is waiting on him outside who allegedly already works here and, and then the secretary walks in and god what was this kid's name already <laughs> peter peter and then so peter checks out the secretary and the camera just has this long shot focusing on her feet <laughs> <laughs> well that the Olaf directed it and he's the character so he knows what's on Peter's mind he does uh there there's another foot shot at some point in this film so there's definitely a feet thing going on yeah well at the end of the interview the interviewer is like you know we were really hoping for a more sincere person um you could work here but you'd have to change you'd have to be more sincere and Peter's basically like screw you and leaves honestly that seems pretty sincere pretty honest with himself <laughs> yeah i think sincere is an odd word but maybe something's lost in translation yeah speaking of the translation the the subtitles on the copy that i watched were a little scuffed uh i started writing stuff down but nothing was quite as good as uh uh don't let them off the hook <laughs> oh i didn't notice anything like that yeah I, maybe, i'm sure the subtitles are different depending on the version but yeah uh, maybe yeah no, that said it's nowhere near as bad as like uh chinese bootleg subtitles so if if you can weather that you can weather this no problem yeah i mean i remember when if you if you were going to watch a movie like this and you did not have one of the few dead alive tapes that were made like the only way to see movies like this were on imported bootlegs all right it's now people are spoiled like all this stuff is so readily available now just the touch it's the changing times man yeah i mean unless you want it on vhs then i think you have to pay about 200 bucks thanks globalization yeah so he does leave his job interview with the friend and then they immediately go and get in some sort of gang fight at first, this looks like it's going to be the worst high school rendition of West Side Story you've ever seen. But then, thankfully, they just start breaking out into a street fight. 
yeah, they're using PVC pipe, sticks, beer bottles. The the fighting looks pretty real. Like I think the stunts are really good. See, this is what happens when you take guns off the streets. People just use other weapons. Well, <laughs> it's brutal. I mean, people like have you seen um have you seen Deadbeat at Dawn? I have not. All right, so we should do that at, at some point on the podcast, but the this is the only thing that I think is comparable to that movie in terms of the brutality and realness of the the fights. Like it, they they're very similar. Um it, this looks like real fighting where well, let me put it this way. I'd be surprised if anyone any of these actors were not were not injured at the end of this. If IMDb is to be believed, uh, apparently the uh, the main actor, the main character, did a lot of his own stunts and and stunts for other characters in the film, and in the process, hurt his balls so many times. I did. I read that. Yeah. So he gets pretty beat up, and he goes home, and his mom is like, "What happened to you?" And uh, he's telling her to piss off and kiss my ass, and then his mom slaps him in the face a bunch. So I'm guessing that you found this pretty humorous. I thought this whole film was something to laugh at, except for, uh, you know, maybe parts of the second story. We'll get there. Yeah. So do you feel like they're going for that tone or do you think that you're just emotionally jaded? I suppose so. Yeah. (laughs) That's the term I used earlier. Yeah. So what do you think? I think this movie is, is, uh, grade a hokey riff material but i think it's intended i don't think this guy's trying to like say something serious it's just all about extremes he's either trying to be absurd or extremely graphic and and, and rude i guess i mean so what i don't think is i don't get the sense from this film that it's like a john waters movie where there is an obvious sense of humor in everything in this film, I feel like the filmmaker is serious. Mm, I don't know. Maybe I don't know enough about the German mindset, but I did not get the feeling that this guy was was trying to make high art here, trying to make something that would that would uh, be deeply thought provoking, right? I don't know if I'd say that. I just don't know if it's meant ironically. But regardless, um, his parents want him to babysit his little sister. And he says, I'm not looking after that bitch. I've got better things to do. And then he gets in a fight with his parents. He throws his mom against a wall and his dad starts to slam him into a table and calls him a drug addict. (laughs) Okay, maybe this part's not that funny, but (laughs) it was kind of funny to see this guy go up in like a a street gang fight and come out untouched only to come home and get like blitzed by his dad. There's a scene right here that confuses me. I don't know if it's a flashback. We see kids throwing pennies or coins into a bottle. And one of the dads comes over and says, I told you not to play with him. Was this a flashback? It is a flashback. To when like he was thinking about, uh, sad times in his life so first we have the character in his bedroom playing with 
the 90 the 90s kids fidget spinner the slinky and then he starts reminiscing about the scene in question the two kids in what looks like a cellar trying to throw coins into a jug but this jug is some kind of antique or is at the very least valuable because the father comes in does not appreciate what's going on here and pulls the kid away see i thought i maybe this is a subtitle difference i thought the dad was mad because the one kid was playing with the other and that's why he said i told you not to play with him oh maybe maybe that was it hmm and that's why this is a depressing thought for him because is at this point he starts rifling through his room to find the drugs yeah and he starts to shoot up heroin um and afterwards he goes outside and he sees the burning moon it looks really cool i don't think this is what happens when you're on heroin oh well, i don't either this is a you this is unique to his reality Yo, what are they cutting it with over there i don't know but uh what do you think that this has symbolic meaning like what is I the know, purpose of this i know german has a lot of wordplay so maybe there is I mean, I felt like there was a, a couple scenes where something was lost in translation, and maybe this title is an allusion to something. Well, I just take it literally as he sees the moon burning. Um, I'm not sure what the significance of it is, but it's a really arresting, cool image, and I love it as a title for this film. The the score during all this is like so effectively dark to me too. Like it really grows on me as the movie goes on. So Peter goes and wakes up his sister and says he's going to tell her a story. And it's called Julia's Love. And so this is the start of our first like story within the anthology. Right. So now the film is divided into two smaller films and Julia's Love is the first one. Well, the thing is, the kid was dead asleep, and Peter comes in saying, "Oh man, you are having trouble sleeping. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read you. I'm gonna tell you some stories." Well, it just shows you that Peter is absolutely oblivious to what any to anyone around him is doing or feeling. Like he's he's a quite narcissistic character. Oh, at the very least, uh, extremely oblivious. So he is our narrator, and I think we have to take that with, we have to keep that in mind as these stories are unfolding. In the first one, we started a psychiatric clinic, and they're talking about this patient, Parker, who keeps getting violent, and they have to lock him up, and he's killed women. Um, they say that at 13, he cut off the thumb of one of his classmates, and then he made murder his hobby, and he's killed 21 people. And one of the doctors is like, yes, he's a classic case of schizophrenia. They're basically having a debate about whether he's an incurable monster or whether he should continue with therapy. But the one doctor says that he stopped all his medications, but we're not told why. But we do, we do find out that he escaped and he killed at least one person on his way out. Um, we see him kill a doctor by like slamming her against the wall. Yes, I, these two characters who uh, I thought were going to be our main, <laughs> our main characters for the story are immediately killed off in the hospital. Right. And 
So we know he escapes. And then we switch to Julia. And she's getting ready for a date. Um, she's on the phone with one guy. And she's trying to tell him to like forget it, that there's no chance. So she's basically fending off suitors. But she's going on a blind date. She's never met this guy. It was a different time. <laughs> right. Oh, we see a, a guy getting out of his car, and then another car rams right into him, knocks his head off, and then runs over the body. This is really the first explicitly gory scene we get in the film. So what did you think? This dude looks like uh, one of those caricatures of like three kids in a trench coat. Really, either this dude is really tall or the vehicles in Germany are really small. But this guy gets out towering above the car we get to really soak up this majesty for about five seconds before he gets immediately plowed into by by a passerby and uh you can tell the exact moment they switch him out for a mannequin which is probably why he's so trenched up with sunglasses on and a hat but uh <laughs> it just explodes <laughs> and he gets dragged across the street tons of blood and parts it it looks funny but it looks good right like this looks cool you know this was like the level of special effects i i was uh i i was i was expecting for this film so i was totally fine with this i i think the special effects are certainly above average for this kind of film I mean, and they certainly messed up that car in the process. <laughs> I, I do think German cars are very small. The, uh, the you know, the, the, uh, the, the hitting car, the slamming car took a dent and they completely takes off the driver's side door of the other one. Yeah. So this is the guy driving the car is presumably the guy who escaped from the asylum but we switch back to Julia and her and her friend are talking about her date. Oh, and I guess it's not totally blind. They met the night before in a bar and her friend is asking, is he ugly? And she's like, as ugly as yours. And they both laugh hmm. and they talk about her ex-boyfriend, Julian, who took like a rainforest trip. I don't know. None of this matters um, because we know that this guy she's meeting up with is going to be the es escaped patient. Right. Yeah. But I, so I have this movie played in the background, like with no, no audio. I'm look, just looking at the subtitles and she says in that coffee meeting, she's never seen the guy before. Yeah. So it's weird. So I'm not crazy. There's like a contradiction here. Maybe, but uh, the important part is it's not like she's seen this guy already and just thought this guy looked the exact same. <laughs> a completely different person showed up. All right. <laughs> but um, it seems to be going really well. The date, he's like telling her she's beautiful and he's really enjoying himself. And she has this line where she's talking. He, she asks about his family and he says that they were all killed. And she says... I just hope something like that never happens to my family. Yeah, yeah, my family got <laughs> murdered. Oh my God, I hope my family never gets murdered. <laughs> so we know that her family's going to get murdered, right? Absolutely. Like, that, that. <laughs> we know what's going to happen. Um, but 
he's he's gonna drive her home uh it, he wants to get off he says he wants to get the relationship off to a slow start and so he'll call her tomorrow and at this point she asks what he does for a living it seems like that question would have came up way earlier but he says he works in a clinic and then they have a super awkward kiss and as soon as their lips press together we get another flashback to see peter's um or see this um this asylum patient we see his grandpa killing his dad and then his grandpa looks at him and says you're next and he says no grandpa no i did crack up about this flashback this is graphic axe murder uh, blood hitting the walls spraying all over the furniture when he's back to the present he realizes he wants cigarettes so he leaves the car to go get some and julia's sitting there listening to the radio and this is where she hears about cliff parker who escaped from a psychiatric facility and she realizes it's the guy she's with and so she runs away and this other car just picks her up like no way i would pick this person up i don't know i mean it's germany in the, the 90s uh i guess um <laughs> i don't know what i meant by that oh well he quickly realizes that she's gone but she left her wallet behind so he has her id with her address this sex worker comes up to the car while he's doing this and he invites her in and she says how do you like it and he says this way and then he stabs her thought that was pretty lame it's okay it gets a little better he has an axe i don't know why but he has an axe and he cuts off the prostitute's head and the guy behind him is honking his horn like so to make him go so he rolls down the sunroof and throws the head on the guy's car that did make me laugh Ju meanwhile julia gets home and she goes up to her room to watch tv and she's watching about parker on the news and she's like another nut like this these are the only people she dates is these mass murderers um but her mom is putting dishes away she closes a cabinet and we get one of those famous jump shots where parker is standing behind it he he cuts off her fingers in like a in a stick of butter and then he cuts her throat so this yeah, this first story doesn't have a lot of downtime it's almost <laughs> no constant murder mayhem yeah i mean the family carnage has begun right now real quick are these the same parents from the framing story like peter's parents i'm not sure i don't think so i'm pretty sure it's the same actors eh, it's possible i didn't notice um it's either that or you know every every older guy in this film just has a mustache yeah, I think that is true. I, I did get the mustachioed characters confused a few times. But I hope you weren't literally looking forward to character development because this family doesn't really get any. No, it is. I don't see any actors who played m both characters, but I, I could be wrong. <laughs> I'm just looking quickly. So. Um, so Julia's talking to her sister and they're talking about her boyfriend, Jake. I thought by this name dropping of Jake that he was going to show up, but he didn't. He did. Did he? Who's he? Who's Jake? He 
He shows up as the uh, final victim before the police officer shows up. Oh, see, I, th I thought that was her brother. Hmm. You know what? I can easily play this word. Hang on. Let me. Yeah, I don't think that's Jake. I think that's her brother. Let's see, car pulls up. I just wanted to shout, Jake. Oh, Gary. Who's Gary? It's a brother. Oh man, she has so many siblings. Well, that we need people to kill off in interesting ways. Woof. All right. Well, we get all kinds of cool gore effects here. Uh, Parker cuts the dad's hand off, and then he stabs a machete through his face. What did you think of the gore effects so far? Like, were you impressed by them? Yeah, I mean, especially for the budget. Uh, I mean, com okay, so the mannequin stuff was cool for for the the roadway scene. But this stuff was on another level. You know, yeah. And compare this to, um, you know, the video dead. The video dead also had some really good special effects for, you know, the budget and the cast they were working with. But this film is obviously way more uh, gory. Well, yeah, the purpose of this film seems to be the gore to a certain extent. And some of it's comical and then other aspects of it are pretty brutal when the sister is getting murdered in the bathroom the, yeah he just stabs her in the back a bunch with a knife and like slams her into the tile wall yeah uh she hits the medicine cabinet it falls over yeah and there's this feet they, they bother to make the distinction in a couple shots that the bathroom floor is slick with blood um most people don't really have to deal with this kind of situation, but if you find yourself in a situation where uh, there is a lot of blood on a tile floor, it is very, very slippery. And they bother to point that out and show the streaks of the actors as they're walking through this room, like trying to maintain their balance. Yeah. It's just the little details like that were um, a little surprising for me. I didn't really expect it from a film like this. No, I mean, that that's this director's... Uh, that was his background, I think, was in these kinds of effects. But uh, while all this is going on, Julia realizes that Parker knows where she is, and she's like, I have to tell my family. And she goes to talk to them, but of course she's too late. Um, she finds the dad with the machete through his face. She tries to call the police, but I guess the phone is dead. The phone is always dead. If you realize that you're on a date with a serial killer, wouldn't you tell someone right then? Yeah, we skipped over that. So she finds out this dude is on the run. Yeah, she sees him on the news. She also fine and then she doesn't tell anybody doesn't tell doesn't try to contact the police nothing then realizes her purse is missing still does nothing no goes to tell her dad i mean don't don't be a narc i guess that's that's the lesson here so this is really uh intense parker shows up and he throws her mom's head at her and then he corners her in the bathroom where she locks herself in, so she's locked in with her sister's dead body, and it's on fire in the bathtub, and the walls are covered in blood, and the medicine cabinet is hanging on its side. Do they not have smoke detectors? I guess not. 
he he yells, it was a stupid idea to lock yourself in there because the door is made of glass. He's like, too bad I have to break it down and cut off your head. What? Why do you think that he he lit the the body on fire? Uh, you know, everything about this movie is just so extreme. I think it's just an extension of that that extremism. Just an attempt to like push boundaries. I mean, this this guy is you know he's a serial killer. He's deranged. He's pushing the envelope. Yeah, he like, says, "Why cut off fingers and butter?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but um. He says, how do you like her now? I played with her a little bit. I think she loved it. So, yeah, they're trying to push the envelope. and um, But it comes off comical, I think, because it's so over the top. So this is where Gary shows up outside and he gets Gary, beheaded. Yeah, Gary the brother. Yeah. <laughs> no confusion here. <laughs> Gary the brother. He He gets beheaded before he makes it to the door. Julia grabs a pair of scissors to fight back with. And then I th- we get like a vision where she's in a field and she's dressed in like a like a red burka thing and she's running in slow motion. Well, she gets knocked out. Right. And then she gets knocked out straight into the in, into the movie Gladiator where she's kind of like <laughs> yeah, lifted among the grains of Elysium. <laughs> yeah, good comparison. But when she wakes up, uh, Parker basically wants to start over. He's like, let's start over from the beginning. I don't want to ruin our relationship. I I want to marry you and we can be just normal people. He keeps saying, I just want to be like everyone else. And this leads into the best part of the film. He says, I want to have kids with you. I want to penetrate you. I want you to absorb all of my love juice. <laughs> I love you. Followed by a montage of them frolicking happily after being married. <laughs> <laughs> they're, yeah. like, they're like walking through the park. They're smiling <laughs> at each other. They're going on picnics. All their friends and family are at the wedding. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to tell me this is trying to be serious? I, I I don't know. I don't know what it's trying to be. When, when she comes out of this vision, he says that he didn't kill her family. He freed them because they didn't love each other anymore. There's a dog running through a field of flowers. <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> it, they're fighting again now. So he he takes her mom's eyeball and shoves it in her mouth and makes her swallow it. And we get a within the mouth camera shot of the eyeball falling down the throat. This is how you win her over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's I think he he realizes she's a lost cause now. He he's about to kill her, but this guy shows up and shoots him in the neck and his head comes off. <laughs> and and the guy is like, "I'm a cop. The guy threw a head on my car." So <laughs> he's the guy from earlier. I don't really know how he got here. 
Like, I don't think he shoots the neck. I think he just one taps this dude in the head and it just completely explodes. Well, I'm just curious, whatever he does, how he gets there. I guess he saw her license plate earlier. Well, he... First off, cop blows this dude's head into pieces. One shot, one kill. The girl, Julia, is laying on the floor covered in this dude's blood and remains like understandably emotionally distraught about what's going on. And meanwhile, this police officer is standing like 12 feet away casually explaining that he thought it was suspicious that a head was thrown at his car <laughs> and he thought he should investigate further. After yeah. giving <laughs> this exposition, only then <laughs> does he come over and help her off the ground. Well, logic before emotion, right? You gotta get our our logos out of the way. Is that uh is that like a normal German philosophy right there? Oh, I'm All not sure. Normal efficiency, ignore emotions. Uh it sounds German. <laughs> not to stereotype, but like cultural stereotypes exist for a reason, right? So this is pretty much the end of the first story. Yeah, the only other thing that's really noteworthy is the as as their carton, <laughs> as the EMTs are carting Julia away into the ambulance, somebody randomly says, uh, "Let me find the subtitle." Someone says, hurry up, get this stuff out of here. No one needs to see this anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah. I don't think they were talking about her, but they, the camera doesn't focus on anything else. Well, even even <laughs> if they're talking about like her, the bodies of her family, no. like that's, that's not any better. It's... <laughs> Was this on your version? Do we need to compare subtitles? No, that's on my version. Yeah. Uh, were your subtitles like stark white? <laughs> uh, I think so. Oh, man. You do not see that anymore. Almost everywhere uses yellow nowadays. And for better. I hate uh, I, I hate like white subtitles in black and white movies. They're impossible. The, the last movie I saw with with white lettered subtitles was actually at the um, at a local independent movie theater, they were showing a um, back in like God, 2006 or something. They were showing a uh, this Asian horror film. I think I want to say it was a it was either Japanese or Thai, and the words were white, but there was a lot of scenes that took place in hospitals and asylums, and <laughs> were all clean, sterilized white. <laughs> You can yeah. barely read the words. And this is like early 2000s. Uh, it, there are lots of my old, like, um, like I have a lot of old classic foreign films on VHS, like Ingmar Bergman's uh, stuff. And all of those have spots where the subtitles are impossible to read. And it's really disappointing. So the story is over at this point. But for some reason, the... After loading Julia into the ambulance, there's like two minutes of dialogue between the police summarizing what happened as if 
you know, we hadn't been there to witness the whole thing. And then we jump back into the real world. Yeah, and the the little girl is saying, "I don't want to hear any more of your stupid stories." And he yeah, says, that, "That's how I, that's how I was feeling too at the time." <laughs> and Peter said, "You're going to listen to the next story. You're going to do what I want, just like I always have to do what the stupid shit that you want." <laughs> I do think it's funny how he talks to his sister. Do you think this was actually like his little sister? No, I don't think so. <laughs> But we start the next story. This one's called the purity. Do you think that this? Do you think that this story is better or worse than the first one? Well, it's definitely not as well balanced as the first story. We I'll, get I'll, a very extreme opener, and then almost nothing happens for a very long time, and then the end of the story is loaded up completely weighed down with about 10 to 50 i think it's like 20 minutes i think it's like 20 minutes like 20 minute gore fest just and and it's almost like an exhibition of every end of every gore effect under the sun (laughs) yeah like they're trying to do everything they could think of you would think this would be splattered throughout the entire story in some way. But no, they they cram it all in the end. Well, this story takes place in 1957, although it seems like it's like earlier than that. Oh, you could tell the year? <laughs> it's it's set at the beginning. Yeah, on my version the subtitles were over the year. Oh, okay. I couldn't read what it was. I was like, well, this movie takes place during a time. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it it was 1957, but it feels more like 1857 to me. <laughs> anyway, a, a woman is riding home on her bicycle and someone hits her in the head and pushes her to the ground. And we get a super, super uncomfortable rape scene. Yeah, uh, you know... I have trouble with rape scenes in movies. Like I just, there. It's probably the only thing that I really have difficulty watching. And this is one of the most realistic that I've ever seen. Like you know, we were having fun, laughing at the camp. Look, look at this. These, you know, over the top gore effects, and, and then bam, graphic rape scene, serial murder in the woods. Yeah, like you can hear their bodies slapping together. Um, Full-on man butt in the in the yeah. frame. It's really intense. Um, it, it lasts about as long as uh, it, it, the sort of thing normally lasts if, you, if you're into true crime. Well, yeah, when... Like it's, it's a little too real. When he finishes, he says, you are the purity, the pure light. And now you are wandering through the darkness, and he shoots her in the forehead. I have no idea what this is supposed to mean. I think the only consistent theme between these two films is that they both star psychopaths with absolute nonsense life philosophy. That's a good point. In the next scene, we find out that this guy is the town 
reverend or priest. Um, he's delivering the sermon at the woman's funeral that he killed. And we see a man bothering this other guy who we're going to find out is Eustace. And he says, look out, we'll get you. And so it's obvious he thinks that Eustace is the one who raped and murdered this woman. Yeah, and, everyone just uh, tries to pile on to the town autist. Yeah, there. it's unclear what exactly makes Eustace different, but he's obviously developmentally different. All he wants to do is farm work, and they can't just leave him alone. That's it, yeah. And he's talking to the priest and saying, like, no one likes me, no one's ever liked me, and he knows the townspeople think he's the one who raped and murdered the woman, and he's worried that they'll hurt him. And the the priest is like, let's go have tea. You know, going back to this woman, uh, when he was uh, doing the eulogy at the, at the, the ceremony. Yeah. Ceremony, the right word. That makes it sound like a celebration. Um, at, at the at, at the funeral, um, you know, open casket funeral, but the coroner just left big old bullet hole sitting in her forehead. But like, man, I I don't think that would happen even in what year is this? Eighteen something. Nineteen fifty seven. Nineteen fifty seven. I think I think co coroner. Science, I think they and it progressed to the point where they could hide a clean entry bullet wound at this point. Yeah, I think so. Anyway, the the so when they sit down to have tea, the priest is telling him that everybody dies and goes to heaven and they have a better life there and that that's God's plans. And they start to talk about the other killings. So I guess multiple people have have died, but we don't know how many. The, the And then the priest starts talking about how awful hell will be, that people will be ripped apart and tortured and never able to die. Do you think that the, that the priest is giving his rationale for killing people that, like, they're going to go to heaven and have a better life? I didn't really think of it that way, but I also didn't try to make sense of this part. <laughs> okay, that's fair. But I um, think that's a, that's a good that's a good way to put it. But we also at this point do not know the priest's background yet. This character actually gets some development. Yeah, it's true. But we switch to another guy who does not get development. Uh, this is this is Irwin. Irwin wakes up during the night because there's a dog barking, and his wife tells him to go check it out. And he's walking around outside like it's super foggy. Um, and then the priest shows up and he's like, I need your wife. She is on her way to heavenly bliss. And then he, sh he shoots the husband so many times that he has to reload his revolver so that he can shoot him some more. To be fair, this guy is basically bulletproof. It, it takes him down to the last bullet to go down. But there's blood oozing out everywhere. <laughs> like there's a lot of blood. But after he finally goes down, the the priest says, you are purified. 
So he ties up the guy's wife and he makes a pentagram on the floor with candles and he's kneeling and chanting and doing some kind of ceremony. Um, He has a really crazy looking sword that he uses to cut her throat and then drink her blood from this big bowl that he collects it in. So we know he's like a Satanist or something. I just want to take this time to point out this guy actually looks like a serial killer. Oh, for sure the most normal non-suspecting guy like middle-aged office guy to fit this role and it's more historically accurate than you know every serial killer being cast as a like super hot guy in their late 20s early 30s i really thought he would like i really believed that he was gulping down that blood like probably no you know, he did he did have like some goat's blood or something there they're going down. <laughs> he was like gulping down for the scene for the authenticity. Yeah, like some some Yodorowsky shit here. Um this like Jinghua so, soul caliber sword <laughs> being used as the sacrificial blade. Yeah, I thought I mean I don't think this sword looks real. I thought it looked kind of silly. No, it looked um, like some kind of a prop for a Halloween costume, but yeah so we switch hey man, back he's got that that sick crystal goblet <laughs> yeah all the blood <laughs> and i'm sure it's like corn syrup or whatever but it looks like real blood i thought it was believable i mean throughout this whole film uh you know the blood looks very real it's, yeah, it's, it's really not... a shame that that this kind of stuff has been phased out for cgi blood and, and modern filmmaking technique which does not look real at all no right like at least not all of this looks real but at least it's fun and you can like wonder like you know the way it is when i'm watching a really impressive special effect a a practical effect i'm like how did they do that and wondering how they did it is what makes the 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 effect look more real but now in a movie with cgi i know how they did it so there's no it's easy to believe it's fake. It's less believable. So anyway, yes, it's unfortunate, but there are some like, uh, there are a few horror movies that come out now and then that are practical effects still. So now we have Eustace. Yeah. He's a good farmhand and get some chores done. Right. He's chopping wood and he's attacked by men from the town they hold him down and kick and punch him and they're saying he's responsible for the dead girls but then the priest shows up and interrupts and we get a a cool see a a flashback i think uh we see a boy who kneels in front of a cross and there's some kind of animal crucified or like alien looking thing and suddenly it burst into flames and then this woman comes and hands him a book and she has like a wolf or a demon face and he's like where do you come from and she says i came straight from hell so I guess this is like the priest's memory of how he got the the warlock book or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, his father told him to become a priest. And he said, all right. And then the devil showed up and made him the wrong kind of priest. Yeah. That's the history you get. 
Well, in the present day, we hear him saying he's praying to Lucifer. And he's saying some nonsense about rescuing souls and how he's going to rescue his soul. And he puts a single bullet in his revolver and shoots himself through the back of the head. And this looks really real, like his brains splatter all over the wall behind him. This is how I imagine it would look if you shot yourself. For films around this time, I think a lot of these, I'm not saying in this case, but there were a lot of people um, who went through war, they were drafted or they went through, um, you know, as a military officer, you had people coming back from Europe, from Vietnam, from Korea, who had actually witnessed significantly violent, traumatic, uh, you know, death. And they can bring these memories, these details with them if they got into filmmaking. Um, the, there was a film, uh, I think it was called Maniac, that had a, uh, a guy get absolutely obliterated by a shotgun. Yeah, that's Maniac. The director specifically crafted that scene how that guy died from a very graphic memory of when he was in war and saw someone die the same way. And the guy that made this film maybe had some kind of experience with violence. And that's why he was able to make some of these things look so, you know, extreme. I don't know. He's clearly a real young guy though. Or I don't know. Maybe he just watched a lot of the wrong films growing up. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's really like his character. You know, there's always the myth of, like, the, the German snuff film, right? Yeah, like the German underground. That's, I mean, that's basically where this film was sold, right? Yeah. I think, that, I think in the next scene, I think Eustace's mom overhears the townspeople paying this guy, Frankie, to kill Eustace. And I thought this was really funny. We, they give him a bunch of money. I assumed as payment to kill Eustace and then he leaves change. Like he puts down some coins on the table. I think he's just paying his bar tab. Yeah, I thought about that, but it, it the way it was handled I like yours better. <laughs> yeah, the way it was handled in one scene, it looked like he was making change. <laughs> So Eustace's mom goes to, to Eustace and tells him they're going to kill you. You have to run. You have to go into hiding. And he's like, but I have to take care of my farm. And he nonchalantly like goes back to work. And sure enough, the guy from the bar shows up, Frankie, and he tells Eustace that he's in deep shit. And he starts beating him up with a hammer, like a big mallet. This would be awful. He keeps like kicking him in the ribs and then and then and in the head and beating him up with the hammer and with his fists. If you are going to kill someone, this is the least efficient way possible. Right next to that hammer, there is a giant scythe. And I was completely sold that that was going to be the murder weapon. No, he even goes and gets instead of the, the scythe, he gets a broom handle. And hits him some more with it. 
it would be comical, except I think that this is filmed with utter seriousness and like a really somber musical score. It doesn't seem like they're trying to be funny here to me. No, maybe not necessarily, but this is a, again, this is a film of extremes. Um, the first film is definitely more of a horror comedy to me than the second part. This one was really embracing the, uh, the darkness of human nature. <laughs> yeah, this is really dark to me. Um, and the score fits it really perfectly. We get one more shot of Eustace's body. He has a pitchfork through him. It looks really cool. And then this voice rings out, Eustace, wake up. And Eustace's like zombie body stands up and he pulls the pitchfork out of himself. Do you think this is God resurrecting him or Satan? I'm pretty sure it's the priest's voice. So you think the priest is magically controlling him from hell? Mm, not necessarily, but I do think that there was some kind of black magic going on that involved some kind of ritual the priest took part of. The when, priest, the priest did say that like he would he would enact revenge if they did anything to Eustace. Right. So Eustace's zombie body goes to the house of the guy who killed him, and he uses his blood to write on the wall. And he writes 666, and then the crucifix that's on the wall inside falls and burns. Is it 666? I thought it was BBB. No, it's 666. Yeah, for Bed Bath & Beyond. It's definitely 666. Oh, if you say so. Wrong movie. Yeah. <laughs> Frankie starts writhing around and holding his stomach like he has this horrible pain and he's screaming. And then, then we transition into we transition into a scene that we already started to talk about, the like the hell sequence. The, I mean, this film is notorious for this this sequence. Um, I, I think it's definitely the most memorable scene from the film. But how did you react to this? What were your thoughts? So we have Frankie here laying on the floor. I didn't know what was going to happen. And then it just looks like he quantum leaps straight into the asylum from Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, that's a good comparison. So... This is my first time watching this film. I did not know the scene was going to be the end cap of the film. And I definitely did not expect it to go on for like 20, 25 minutes. This was like, um, it's like, it's like uh, Peter's drug high was hitting an apex and he just started telling a completely different story. I mean, I think that this is just an excuse to show off special effects and to uh, for Olaf Ittenbach to like show his vision of hell like this is what hell would be like we've got dead mutilated bodies everywhere like piled on top of each other there's people with no skin there's people stepping on intestines or eating intestines uh, people in like dog crates and everyone is crying or screaming or moaning there's a guy on fire. There's another guy that just has fire coming out of his eyes. It, you know what? It reminds me of like a really gory 
Halloween walkthrough, like, you know, Halloween Horror Night style. Um, or maybe like the old Geraldo Rivera insane asylum footage, but you know, with everybody's body splitting open. <laughs> There's people being kept in dog cages, people yeah. wrapped in togas, severed heads, and what's most likely animal organs splattered across floors. Yeah, they're definitely like pig organs. Um, in case you were wondering, um, you know, hell apparently has a, a harbor freight somewhere because people are using power tools on each other. Yeah, someone gets an ice pick to the head. Someone gets a shotgun blast to the chest and then to the head. One guy, the one that like I thought was the the most disturbing was there's a guy on crutches and one of his legs is just like barely hanging on like barely attached and it's kind of swinging as he goes i i just i can't like it looks painful yeah that's the one where uh he's walking on crutches and uh, he like knocks over a severed head on the floor out of his way yeah <laughs> so he can keep shuffling but hey you know at least the uh, satan was kind enough to give him crutches yeah that's true so sure. they they strap Frankie down to a table and they say, the kingdom of pain has come for you. You will cross the barrier of human pain. And it goes on, but then he says, welcome to hell. And they start hammering nails into him and they use a corkscrew in his eye. They cut him open and then they start to drill into his teeth, which I can't watch. It's the only th like thing that's done to a human body that I cannot look at. I have to look away or close my eyes. And the demons doing this stuff just look like other messed up people. Yeah, I mean, they kind of look like the Cenobites from Hellraiser, but more, um, less... Less elevated, less fancy, more degraded. Like this one guy looks like Elijah Wood with half his face missing and a fake eyeball just slammed right into the <laughs> where you would think the left socket would be amongst all this flesh. Is that the one that has like 10 nails in his eye? Yes. So, like, the fake eye is, like, nailed in place. I don't think it's supposed to be a real eye. <laughs> like, you're not supposed to think it is. I don't know. He has his mouth open like Chatterer from Hellraiser. That that's same, a like, different guy. Oh, that's a different guy. Okay. Yeah, that's a guy that's, like, wearing a helmet. Well, he uses, like, a big corkscrew, like the kind you screw into the ground to attach a dog lead to. And... He, like, puts it into Frankie's stomach, and I thought he was going to, like, wrap up the intestines, but then he starts messing with pliers down there and, like, ripping stuff out, and then they put these chains on his ankles, and he slowly gets ripped in two, and then the voice calls Eustace, uh, presumably to heaven, like, Eustace does not have to go to this hellscape. Was that your takeaway? Oh, I just thought he was stuck there. <laughs> well, we don't see the priest there, right? No, I don't think the priest is there. So I don't is, recognize him amongst all this this carnage anyway. Was is the implication that the priest actually was doing God's work? So I'm seeing the message 
or I'm see, okay, so I'm I'm rewatching the end of this right now, and the voiceover that's the priest saying, you know, my son, you have paved your way into the kingdom of immortality. He's speaking to Eustace on the ground, um, still I guess zombified, but soul still present. He's told that all of his suffering will be taken, and we can assume that Eustace goes to heaven at this point but frankie frankie is is done he he is he's gonna be in that that 25 minute section of film for the rest of his life yeah and it's it's really strange because on the one hand this story has a very moralistic message to it right like you either go to heaven or hell and the people are being punished for their cruelty to eustace but on the other hand, there's like this streak of nihilism where arguably the the worst character, the priest that we see violently rape and murder somebody, he's in like a he's doing God's work or he's in like a middle place or he has some sort of power over everyone around him. Like this is a very ambiguous ending. I wouldn't really uh I wouldn't really try to analyze it too hard. Also, it's 10 minutes. The The hell scene is 10 minutes long. Oh, it feels very long, but it I, I don't... much longer. I don't... Uh, I don't dislike it, though, being there. Like, it does... It, I think if I had seen it when I was younger, it would have really disturbed me. Because, like, the stuff from the first two Hellraiser movies disturbed me when I was, like, a teenager. It's just odd that it's sandwiched inside this one story in this very specific way like we don't really get this across in our overview but to give you an idea the graphic rape scene happens at the very beginning and then there's the satanic uh rich there's the ritual sacrifice about 10 minutes later and then there's nothing for almost 20 minutes before we get the 10 minute extended hell scene like there's just this large gap of just people talking and moving the plot along but well it's basically it's basically all the townspeople like beating up on eustace yeah but even that doesn't last very long it's mostly just the the setup to to pin the crimes on eustace i don't know i didn't notice the i didn't notice the lag that you're talking about I mean, compared to the first story, it's definitely a lag. Like the first story has almost no breaks in the plot and in, in the action. And then well, this one... the the first story basically has no plot. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. This one has a degree of plot. But we go back to Peter and we see that he's put a knife in his little sister's chest, and he tells her to sleep. And then he sits down at a table and he practically cuts his hand off. Like he cuts his wrist, but super deep. And then presumably he, he bleeds out and he falls on the floor in front of the door. I thought this was a horrifying ending. I mean, after what we just watched <laughs> beforehand, I don't think this was uh, necessarily unexpected. No, I just think the concept of like their dead bodies being there when the parents come home is like a really upsetting thought to me. I mean, that, that's just the curse of getting older. All of this shit starts to have more emotional weight to it. 
Well, I also think like I so I had a sibling who died and like the worst part of it is not his death, but it's imagining my mom's reaction to finding him. And that's all I can think about is like how emotionally devastating that would be. And so even though a lot of this movie is really funny and over the top to me, it has this like it's bookended by a real dark, like tragic nihilist mood or theme to me. And uh, it makes it hard to take the film lightly. Again, I, this is a film of extremes. You have like absolute absurd humor followed by graphic, shocking violence and despair. <laughs> There's no middle ground. No, this is a good place for final thoughts and a rating out of four. So you want to go first? Yeah. So uh, home video, man, that, that's that's definitely the most extreme video I've seen on regular ass film. I don't think this is necessarily a good film, but watching it is definitely an experience. To break it down, you have 70% grade A riffing material among friends, if if that is something that you're into. And, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess you, nobody's really having, having uh, in-person watch parties anymore with this in a corona world but maybe post corona in the future you can start having riffing parties again but yeah like 70 percent of it is is stuff you can actually make fun of it's hokey it's great it's fun viewing experience 20 percent of it is like boring slog which i think is all in the second half um i could be mistaken because uh, as luke was saying he didn't really notice it could just be me and then you got the final 10 percent, which is the you know the event horizon hellscape experience it's a film of extremes N nothing about this film is subtle it's all very direct we've already mentioned that the guy who made this film did so at a pretty young age so perhaps he wasn't necessarily familiar with the emotional nuances that come with things like like uh you know parents dealing with children children's suicide or graphic rape and murder or i, I guess just uh mutil mutilation and deformity in general right uh this this film can be extremely uncomfortable to watch if you are not okay with violence in a in like a theatrical setting but the experience of watching this film was certainly something that i'm not used to and so it's very memorable for me i'm going to remember this movie even though i'm not exactly a huge fan of it i do love the special effects uh the the last 10 minute hell scene was definitely um something that saved the film for me uh as i thought the quality of the second story was significantly uh lower or at least very different than what i'd been set up to believe the rest of the film was gonna be after the the first hokey story i'm gonna go with 
two stars here, the coward's rating, just because this is a film worth watching if you can stomach the content. For me, it's distinctive because I, I have not been exposed to this kind of underground cinema in any sort of uh, significant quantity. I think this is the first film like this I've ever sat through to, to the finish. And if this sounds like, I won't put this, like I would only recommend this to someone who has a very comfortable disposition to film violence, film tragedy, but also someone who wants to maybe experience some uh, intense feelings that might come with seeing this kind of content. If that sounds like you, then this this is probably something you should actively seek out. Now, should should will I ever want to watch something like this again? I might not want to go out of my way for it, but if we end up covering something like this in the future, I'm you know I'm down. I ain't gonna back away. Before I I give my thoughts, I just wanted to share on the back of the the video release I have. There's a quote from Hunter Stevenson writing for Vice, and he says. Every other sicko horror movie is but glassy-eyed taxidermy above the mantle of the burning moon. The cinematic equivalent of humping gravestones after midnight on meth. I love the uh, phrase glassy-eyed taxidermy above the mantle of. It's a shame Rupert Murdoch bought all of Vice and now it sucks. <laughs> Well, as far as this film goes, it's a really hard one to, to rate or even talk about if it's not clear from this episode. Like, on the one hand, the central character and the story's themes are so dark and so nihilist and so depraved in a way. They're so all of those things to... Uh, an exaggerated degree that it comes off as comical, right? And then there's moments where the film feels amateurish, but it does not feel incompetent to me. But the I think the amateur nature of the filming does lend itself to moments of humor too. Um, but then there's moments of real darkness. And on the one hand, like, yeah, it's a really cool special effect, but on the other, the scene of hell like genuinely elicits discomfort to me and um, disturbs me to a degree. And, and I think the ending is very disturbing, but I'm not disturbed for most of the runtime. I'm just entertained. I actually think the second story is the more memorable of the two. Like, it's the one that sticks in my mind. But the first one is certainly more entertaining with more just nonstop action and special effects, which, as I said, I think last week, this is the most technically impressive shot on video movie I've seen for sure. I also think it's probably the most creatively ambitious in the things that it's trying to tackle. I don't know how, what's the word? Um, I don't know how focused the theme or messaging is 
for Olaf Idenbach, you know, making this movie. But there is a real, it really does seem like it's trying to say something at points. I, I don't know. That could be me reading too much into it. I'm going to give this, oh, this is so hard to rate. I'm going to give it three stars. And I think the the reason I'm giving it a star more than Leland is mainly just because I respect the audacity of and, and the vision of doing something like this with the budget they had and with the resources they had and with the technical skill that they had, like, and producing something that, like Leland said, I will never forget watching it. Like, I think it's a very memorable film even if it's not a traditionally good one. So yeah, if you haven't seen this and it, this is, uh, it sounds like it is of your milieu, then I recommend that you see it. Yeah, I just want to reiterate, I don't think there is any kind of grand messaging in this film. It really just feels like a special effects exhibition along with just the very intense intent to shock and gross out the audience. Yeah, but it does take a certain type of person to have that as your central mission, right? Like, I mean, if you think of something, okay, so like the gory equivalent of this from the same year, I think, is Dead Alive, right? But Dead Alive has a very coherent, pervasive sense of humor. And clearly the primary purpose of that movie is to make us laugh, Whereas this does not have that. the If you're right, then the primary purpose of this movie is just to be gross. I don't think primarily gross. <clears throat> Did I say that just now? I don't. I, I <laughs> no, extrapolated I'm myself. I mean, it, it, it's not all gross, but because like I said, there's parts that are like I thought they were pretty funny, like in the first half. I, it's just like it's like a celebration of like the human emotional spectrum like you know it, some there's there's this phrase where first you hurt then you heal when you're trying to like teach someone something or maybe an animal but in this case they got it the other way around first there's like this good-natured humored violence and then it like segues into absolute misery that's fair all right anyway. so so next week, we are doing a really obscure melodrama from 1976. It, on the one hand, it fits into the thematic trends, I think, of our show. On the other, I, I don't really know why we're doing this movie, but I'm really curious what Leland's going to think of it. It's so called... It, is this an actual video store nightmare, or are we bending the rules again? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. It's called Whose Child Am I? And the tagline for the film was Handmade Babies. Was it the hand of God or the hand of the devil? It's, it's kind of like an after-school special type film about like the horrors and complications of artificial insemination. When that was like a a scary new technology that represented man meddling with God. So I think it's, for the time, I think it's a, a sort of social, moral nightmare. We'll see if you think it fits. 
it was also released apparently as feelings and as test tube baby. But I think this was probably a drive-in film. But it kind of feels like a made-for-TV film at points, which I love. I love 70s made-for-TV films. But anyhow, I'll leave it at that. If if you can watch this, do. I, I'm honestly not sure of the availability out there. We don't think it's on YouTube. But by all means, do not take our word for it. Like, Try to find it because... Um, it's worth seeing if for no other reason than it is an experience. It is something unlike things that you have watched before. With that said, Leland, do you have any last words? Thank you for your continued support. Yes, thank you for me as well. And we will talk to you next week for Whose Child Am I? Until then, goodbye.